Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Lord of heaven, we once again ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. Illumine our minds and fill us with your spirit. Grant to us understanding. And may we, O Father, have a reverence for you and your word. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. Many of you recognize the name John Ashcroft. He was a senator whose father, whose father was a country preacher. And Senator John Ashcroft, in his book, Lessons from a Father to His Son, he writes this, quote, Many kids wake up to the smell of coffee brewing or the sound of a rooster crowing. My wake-up call was my father's passionate praying. Sometimes I'd ease downstairs and join him. One knee was usually raised. So I'd slip in underneath, shielded by his body as he pleaded for my soul. I never caught Dad praying for our happiness. He realized that the pursuit of happiness for its own sake was frustrating, disillusioning, often a futile effort. Happiness usually hides from those addicted to its sugar while it chases away those caught up in something more lasting than momentary excitement. I never heard him pray for a bigger house car or bank account. Instead, he prayed that our hearts would be ignited and inspired to do things of eternal consequence. Quote, turn our eyes from the temporal, the physical and the menial, he prayed, and toward the eternal, the spiritual and the noble. My father never pressured us towards achievement. He knew that the push he had come was from inner reserves, not outward designs. He simply dangled before us the possibilities. Thanks to his example, we sometimes took the bait, unquote. What an example. What an example of a father. Not only a father who prays, but a father who prays for his children. And a father who prayed that his children wouldn't be so stuck on the temporal, on the physical, on the vain, on the menial, on the worldly. But that his children would love what is eternal. Would love what is spiritual, what is noble, what would last for eternity. Their eyes would be fixed on the eternal and not the temporal. I know one of my prayers is that I would love God and that I would love what God loves and I would hate what God hates. Often that is my prayer because I know my heart is so tempted to love what the world may dangle in front of me. And when our heart is right, when our passion for God is right, then other things will fall into place. When I love what God loves, then my passion and my own heart will beat as the heart of God beats. And it doesn't come, you see, when we motivate people externally. It comes when there is an internal desire and a love for God that we want what God wants and we are offended by what God is offended by. That drive for living, that drive for living for God's glory is going to be internal 
if it's going to mean anything significant because it comes from a love for God, a love for His Word, a love for living for the glory of God. And as we've read this morning, the Lord Jesus, out of His holy indignation, out of His righteous anger, He clears the temple. He clears the temple of what is offensive to God. Because God is His Father and He Himself is God. He is consumed for God's glory. But he faces the contention that comes from the opponents and then the consequences of the crowd responds. And so we look at this text of what it is to have a passion for God's glory. We see the Lord Jesus Christ who is consumed with God's glory in verse 13 through 17. For it says as the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem... Now, the Passover is an annual feast, an annual feast that every male Jew aged 12 and older was required to attend in Jerusalem. It was a memorial of the greatest event. You ask a Jew what the greatest event in the mind of a Jew was, and that was the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt by God's hand, out of bondage, out of slavery, and it reminded them that is what Passover was all about. It reminded them of the last plague when an angel of death was sent upon the land when they were still in bondage to slay every firstborn child of every family in the land. And if Israel wanted to be spared, the Jews would take a lamb. They would slaughter it and they would spread the blood on the doorposts of their home. So when the angel of death came that night over the land, it would see the blood and it would pass over their home and spare them. But the Egyptians had no such provision. The Egyptians had rebelled against God and in their rebellion, all of the firstborn died. And it prompted Pharaoh to release the Israelites and they were delivered from bondage. And annually on the 10th month of, of a month in which they call Abib or Nisan, which happens in March or April of our calendar, on the 10th of that month, it corresponds a firstborn or first year male lamb with no blemish would be taken. And on the 14th day between 3 and 6 p.m., that lamb would be sacrificed and killed. And then there would follow after that day seven days of a feast of what is called unleavened bread, which was celebrated from the 15th to the 21st day of that same month. And sometimes when you read about Passover, it refers to both Passover the day as well as the feast of unleavened bread. And that is what they were celebrating. And by the way, it begins Passover this year um, a week from this Monday on the 25th of March, and it ends on April 2nd. But the Passover was a monumental celebration in the life of Israel, and throngs of people would have been gathering in Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem's population had some, oh, 100 to 300,000 people on a normal, normal month. But during Passover, that number, Josephus says, could swell to roughly a million people. 
A million people would gather for the Passover. And you can imagine every inn, every housing establishment, every stable, wherever there was a bed was filled. It was like the fairgrounds out here where every, everyone's front lawn turns into a parking lot. It was crowded and there were throngs of people that had come. The text says in verse 14, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and donkeys and the money changers seated at their tables. Now, there were mercenaries there in the temple, likely right outside in the court of the Gentiles, and they were selling animals and exchanging money. Because the system that the Jews had set up, the religious leaders had set up, they had set up business to fund the temple, to line their pockets, and they had a monopoly. You see, Old Testament law dictated that every person needed to bring animal sacrifice. If you were coming from, from a far distance, you know, you wouldn't want to bring an animal. You would perhaps just buy one from there. In addition, if you brought an animal, that animal, that animal had to be without blemish. And you would have to bring that animal and it would be inspected. And if they found that it had a blemish, well, you wouldn't be able to use that animal as a sacrifice. You had to buy a certified animal, a certified lamb, and they would sell you one at the temple. So if you came from far away or you're afraid that your animal, after carrying it for so far, wouldn't even be approved, you might as well buy one from them. And it would, the markup was tremendous. And every person, every man excluding women, children, and slaves, would have to pay an annual temple tax of a half a shekel. And you couldn't just pay with any old coin. You would have to pay with a coin that wasn't Roman, because the Roman coin would have the picture of Caesar, and that would be considered idolatry. So you had to exchange that coin, and that's why there were money changers in the temple court area, and the, those money changers would charge a high exchange rate, according to F.F. Bruce, roughly up to 10, 12.5% even. It was unfavorable to the person. They would go and they would have to buy a lamb and they would have to exchange their money and they would lose on the back end. And so if you bought, you had very unfavorable terms. And that is why Jesus accused them in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, of making a robber's den. For they would milk and bilk people who would come. But as you can imagine what it might have been like for the Lord Jesus to come into the temple, the temple that was going to be, supposed to be, the house of prayer, the temple where they were to worship God, the temple where they were to have reverence for God, to worship the sovereign of the universe, to be the person who comes and to humble themselves before the creator of all things. And it turned out to be a stockyard with the stench of animals and the filth and the people sitting behind these tables, cross-legged, exchanging money, charging people exorbitant prices, some of whom are already poor. What an offense to God. And the people should have felt shame. They should have felt shame. But they were shameless as these money changers and these businessmen were taking over 
So the text says in verse 15, And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he spoke to them. He made cords, and the cords were lying around. The cords were common. The cords were used to tether up the animals. These were cords that were used also to, to tie up the crates to keep the animals within them. It was used to carry things. Cords were all around the place and he tied up a number of these cords and he made a scourge or a whip. And he used that whip and he drove out the people, the mercenaries and the animals. And he overturned the tables and he took the coins and he poured them out. You can imagine the mayhem. You can imagine the chaos. Those who were selling animals would be chasing after their livestock. Those who were money changers would be crawling on the ground, chasing after the rolling away coins. And people would be wondering what was happening and who was this man. And he said to the money changers, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This wasn't the only time that Jesus drove them out of business, people from the temple. This was the first of two times. The first of two times. There was a time, this was the first time that he overturned the tables of the money changers. And there was a second time at the end that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record in the synoptic gospels of him driving out these people because they had not learned the first time. But in Matthew 21, the second time, he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. These religious leaders, these religious leaders and their lack of reverence and their lack of holiness for God's glory, They'd use the temple to make money, to line their pockets rather than preserving it as a house of worship, a house of prayer. The same can be said today when there's a lack of reverence or respect, a lack of fear of a holy God, where God is not central, where God is not glorified. Sin clouds the heart. All sorts of justifications ensue. And the question for us as we read this text and we see in the Word of God, Jesus' reaction to this is, what offends us? What offends us? Would we have been offended by the fact that this was going on in the temple grounds if we were to walk in in those days? People taking advantage of others, who were many of whom were poor. What would you have done? What truly offends us? What bothers us? Does it bother us? When people offend God? Does it bother us when God is not central or when God is not honored? Does it bother us when we hear things, watch things, or things that people say or do that are offensive to God? That's indicative. That's indicative of our own heart. Isn't it? Our own sensitivity to sin is a mark of our own maturity. 
in Christ. Our sensitivity to what offends God is a mark of our own maturity in Christ. Because if our heart isn't troubled or angered by things that would anger God, then it's indicative of the callousness towards God. It would be the same, should be the same, as Christ's reaction to those who treated God in such a way. These people could have cared less. These people could have cared less. What upsets you? What angers you? He had some Jews who came to him. For the opposition was contentious against him. They didn't know who he was. The Jews came to him and said, verse 18, What sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. These Jews could very well have been representatives of the temple guard. They could have been the temple guard. They could have been representatives of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews in charge of the religious affairs made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two major groups. They came to Jesus with that size of a crowd, with, with uh, the people that were, that were packed into Jerusalem, there could have very well been in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 temple guards who were in charge of the grounds. And some of them could have come to Jesus, these Jews, questioning him. And remember, this was at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. His public ministry began in chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana. And here he comes, right after that wedding, he comes up to Jerusalem, comes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He had performed his first miracle among family and friends. This was his first introduction to the public. And here the response of the Jews was utterly self-condemning. They said, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Self-condemning. First of all, display their unbelief. Their unbelief time and time again. You see, within the Gospels, they ask him, what sign? What sign do you have? John later wrote in chapter 12, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Time and time again, he performed signs in order to validate, in order to support who he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And practically speaking, you'll find there are people, there are people who are like that. Their heart is hardened against God. They're not open to God. And no matter what they see, no matter what they hear, no matter what the Word of God says, no matter what is shown to them, the callousness of the heart is there. And God desires to break through that callousness to show His love and care. But like these Jews, like these Jews, sometimes the heart is hard. But the second thing that the question that they ask, it, it implicates their own guilt. It implicates their own guilt. You know, all they needed to do was to arrest Jesus. All they needed to do was address Jesus. I mean, so many temple guards and he's just one man and a few people to tackle him and bind him up with the cords or whatnot. But notice they didn't, they didn't arrest him. 
The Romans didn't do anything. They had Fort Antonio. Fort Antonio was built next to the wall. It was, it was overlooking this tower that overlooked the temple grounds. So the Romans could keep an eye on all that the Jews were doing. And they could have very well and easily sent a garrison there. But they didn't. Perhaps they thought it was all rather theatrical. The fact that the Jews didn't arrest Jesus, the fact that Rome didn't do anything, the fact that these Jews were simply asking him, who is your authority? Show us a sign. What sign do you have? Implicates them in their guilt. For they knew that something was wrong with what they were doing. It would be like as if you were driving down I-90 at an exorbitant speed and you were pulled over for excessive speeds and the police officer who comes to pull you over you ask him for his ID as if he were the one who had to validate what he was doing Jesus answered to them and said destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up they thought you see he was referring to the temple that was behind them they were on the temple grounds They said it took us 46 years to build that temple. That was the temple that Herod built. It wasn't Solomon's temple. This was the second temple because the first temple had been ransacked and destroyed and Herod's temple had been built here and they thought that is what he meant. And time and again, they misunderstood what Jesus was saying. In Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the sign of him being raised in three days. That is why we celebrate Easter, by the way. That is why we celebrate Easter, because after three days, Jesus arose from the dead. Good Friday is the day that we remember his death on the cross. In three days, he arose from the grave that we might have life. But they were always looking for a sign. They were always looking for a sign, these Jews. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the cry of some. They always want a proof. Proof. That God exists. And even though there is plenty of evidence, not only from the scriptures, but from fulfilled prophecy and from archaeology and from extant sources, there is a hardness of the heart. But one thing that is true, one thing that is true is that those who are passionate about what is true, those who are passionate about what is right, those who are passionate about the glory of God, who desire to hold fast to the Word of God, will find that there is often opposition, will find that there is often unbelief, will find that there is often those that will not treat them rightly, and they will say, don't get so worked up, calm down, Don't be angry. That won't win anybody over. But the things that offend God ought to offend us. The things that God loves, we ought to love. Things that God desires, we ought to desire. Jews responded. The temple guards, the religious leaders, they 
continued to oppose Christ throughout his ministry. But the crowd, how did they respond? Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Many signs were done. Many signs were done at the Passover during the feast. But the week-long feast, many, quote-unquote, believed in his name. But he knew, the text says, he knew the heart of man. There's a play on words here. Because, you know, they believed, but he didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew the fickleness of people. He knew that people would follow him because it was easy or convenient. He knew that people would desire what he had to offer if it was good. Thousands of people thronged him when he fed 5,000, when he fed 4,000. It was many more thousand than that. Then add in the women and the children. Thousands of people, they would come. But his message became difficult because he would challenge them. If you wish to be my disciple, then you must count the cost. But it wasn't, it's not mere intellectual belief that saves anyone. It is not merely a, an emotional ascent to a set of facts. No, these people saw Jesus and they were drawn to him. But he knew what was in their heart. There is a type of, quote unquote, superficial belief that does not save. James chapter 2, verse 19 talks about this. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons also believe and shudder. There's a belief that does not save. There's a belief that is superficial. And on the outside, there may be plenty of outward behaviors, but it is what is in the heart that Jesus sees. And Jesus knew the heart of the Jews at that time. He says in Matthew chapter 15, he quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says about the Jews, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Is that us? Is that us? Do we worship God in vain because the heart is not here, our bodies are here, we can sing the songs, we can hear the word, we can behave right, but what is in the heart? What is in the heart? Does the heart yearn for the things of God? Is the heart far away from God or is it close to God? What is the condition of the heart? I'm sure these people who came to the Passover, many gave thanks, many had their lamb, many exchanged money, gave of their temple tax. But God is concerned about what is in the heart. For Matthew 7 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never 
knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many who may do many good things, may be very moral people, may be very kind. What is in the heart is what God cares about. And I'm sure many of us can understand that, of course. You who are parents can understand that. You are concerned about the heart's motivation of your children. You want them to do things that are right and true because of what is in their heart, not because they're being forced to do so. God cares about the same. What is our relationship with the Lord Jesus? What is the passion of our heart? These Jews believed, it says in the text. Jesus knew that this belief wasn't genuine, so he didn't entrust himself to them. So as we look at this account, we ask ourselves, what do we, what do we desire? What is, our, what is our prayer for ourselves? What is our prayer for our spouse or for our children? Do we pray for their happiness? John Ashcroft's father didn't pray for their happiness. He prayed for what? He prayed for their heart. That they would have their heart fixed on eternal things. That their heart would love God. That their heart wouldn't be led astray by the things the world dangles in front of them. That they might have a heart that loves the Lord. Because what the world offers, it offers a Poison a stick that will suck the life out of your passion for God, your desire to pursue God. John Piper's book entitled A Hunger for God, he writes, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ills that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife, Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts and the deadliest appetites are not of the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their heart, but then as they go away, they are choked by the worries and riches and pleasures of this life, Luke 18. Another place he said the desires for one thing enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Mark 4. The pleasures of this life, the desires for other things are not evil in themselves. They are not vices, but they are gifts from God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and interest and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all these can become deadly substitutes for God. When God is the supreme hunger of our hearts, he will be supreme in everything, unquote. Is that what you do 
Many people say to me when I ask them about their walk with the Lord, Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I don't have time for God. I'm so busy with my meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising, collecting and talking that I don't have time for God. For God has given us many gifts and many of these things that are good. The world dangles before us and says, invest yourselves in these things. And it sucks the hunger and the passion for God out of our life. Are you so busy that your work, your family, your home, or what you own dominates life? The question is then, if that is true, what, what will you do about it today? What will you do about it today? For many come to that point where they say, it is, it is. These things take up all of my time, all of my mind and energy and effort. Will you do something about it today. No excuses, no self-justification, no explanation. Will you or won't you? Do you know what eternal priorities looks like? Eternal priorities look like this. A nurse and her daughter named Kayla, who's an obstetrician, they left three days before particular date on a 17-day medical training mission and with the Northwest Medical Team. They're based out of Portland, Oregon here. And they went to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the two joined six other doctors as experienced missionaries. And during the three days it took to reach the region, the medical team traveled over marginal roads and that narrowed to near non-existent. They waded through streams. They crossed through Bridges that had been improvised, and the team went with the Evangelical Covenant Church. The hospital is the only medical facility there in the Democratic Republic of Congo, servicing some 300,000 people and some 2,500 patients a month in which they use rudimentary, rudimentary equipment. More than 3.9 million Congolese have died since 98 from preventable diseases, according to the British medical journal, The Lancet. But it's not the idea that one would sell everything and go on some missions trip. That's not the point. The point is that the woman who went, her name was Katie Holmgren, the wife of Mike Holmgren. And she left three days before the Super Bowl, when the Seahawks were there. She took her daughter and they chose instead not to sit in some cushy box seat watching the Super Bowl, but they decided to go and serve others with their gifts. What would you have done if given the choice? What would you have done if given the choice? What would you have advised your children to do Seahawks in Super Bowl, for many, they would give up everything to be there. For her, our former coach's wife, she had desired to be a missionary with Covenant Church, a medical missionary 
way back when, Mike Holmgren, he decided that he wanted to give her a gift and send her back to the country which she had spent 10 months in serving in that region. What would you have done? What would you do? What would your choice be? Would it be to place the things of God first? Would it desire to serve God with a passion? Desire that what heart God has for the lost would be your heart? Is that what you would love? When you come to a passage such as this and you see Jesus coming and he sees that God has been dishonored, what would you do? What would you do? Would that make you angry? Would that make you incensed? That people would defame God in such a way? Would your priorities be right? That what God loves would be your heart and what God hates would be what you hate as well? That's what God desires of us. That we love God above all else and that we love people just as we would have known the love of God. What is your heart? It's a beat with a passion for God, a zeal for God's glory, that God might be honored no matter what the world places before us. That's the question today. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, the world, O God, is often so enticing in the things that it puts before us. Many of these things, O oh Father, are common things. Things that are gifts oftentimes, O oh Lord, from You. Things that we are called to be stewards of. Pleasures. And yet, Father, many times they dominate our life and they have become our God. And so, Father, we pray that we might confess of the idols of our heart, that our zeal and our passion might be for your glory, that we might love what you love and hate what you hate, that what offends you, O oh Father, would offend us, and that, Father, you would be glorified above all else, that we would desire to have a zeal and a passion for you. As we have been called children of the Almighty King, in Jesus' name, amen.